Hello, and welcome to the Bamboo Lab Podcast with your host, Peak Performance Coach, Brian Bosley. Are you stuck on the hamster wheel of life, spinning and spinning, but not really moving forward? Are you ready to jump off and soar? Are you finally ready to sculpt your life? If so, you've landed in the right place. This podcast is created and broadcast just for you. All of you strivers, thrivers, and survivors out there. If you'd like to learn more about Brian and the Bamboo Lab, feel free to reach out to explore your true peak level at www.bamboolab3.com. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Bamboo Lab podcast. I'm Brian Bosley, and I want to welcome all of you to the 100th episode of this show. Um, we got an amazing guest on today, and I can't wait to reintroduce him to the Bamboo Pack. But before we do, I want to share a couple of things. Quickly, I want to just give an update on the analytics. We have not been, as you know, putting out a show every week as we were before. I was had decided that I was not going to keep up the streak just to put out a show. Um, I'm going to make sure our shows are quality content as often as possible, if not always as well. I do think we'll be back to a show a week here uh, very soon because we have a lot of amazing guests lined up. Anyway, um, I want to thank all of you for subscribing, smashing that like button, rating, reviewing us, and really more importantly for sharing us with three people because as of this morning, we are now being followed avidly um, on, all, on six continents, 62 countries, and 1,776 cities around the world. So thank you so much, man. I would not have expected this. Uh, never really expected to make it to 100 episodes, to be honest with you. Um, but I want to read a quick heart letter. This was from a, a previous guest we had on the podcast, and uh, he, re- he emailed me or texted me and said, Hey, Brian, I wanted to share with you, yesterday while I was dropping off my car at the dealership for repair... Um, I saw a friend who works there, and she shared how my story on your podcast motivated her, and she is now an avid fan of the show. She's binge-watching all past episodes. Your 100th episode is coming up. I pray it's only the beginning, and there will be 500-plus more in the future. That's the kind of stuff I'd love to hear. And I wanted to share that one today because I want to let you know the, the, the guests we bring on change people's lives. And if you or you, you yourself, you know of anybody who thinks, hey, I'd like to be a guest on this show. I've got a really cool story to share. Please reach out. Um, that's how most of the guests are now coming on is due to themselves or an agent or a friend or a publisher reaching out and saying, hey, I think this person's got a good show, a story to tell. So you know where to reach me, Brian at BambooLab3.com. All right. Speaking of amazing guests, this one did not come on. Uh, this guest today did not come on because he reached out to me. Uh, this guest was on last July 19th of 2022 in an episode number 30 called Keep Showing Up. We have Fred Schultz on today. Fred and I have been friends now for several, several years. Even though we have never met face-to-face, we talk consistently over the phone through text um, to the point now where we consider each other brothers and every conversation ends with I love you. And uh, Fred shared a story back in on the 30th episode, but uh, he's going to continue with that story today. So without further ado, my brother, Fred Schultz, welcome back to the 100th episode of the Bamboo Lab podcast. And I can't imagine a better person to share this with. And before we even go to that, I'm sorry, I should have said this before. When the 100th episode was coming up, 
I thought, what can I do, man? What can I do? It's got to be a special show. And my, I don't know if it was me or somebody mentioned, why don't you have your children on with you? Have Ashley, who's 36 years old, and have your son Dawson, who's 20 years old. And I mentioned that they are both game for it. But like I do sometimes, I drop the ball. I didn't schedule it, and they are hard to schedule. Ashley is a is a is a is a, a mother and a, and a wife and a professional woman. Very busy schedule. Dawson is a twenty year old junior at Northern Michigan University, going to class, working, and as well as playing lacrosse. So it was really hard to get their schedules and my schedule lined up. But uh, that's going to come in the near future. So last week I was talking to Fred Schultz on the phone, and we were going through our kind of you know are, I don't know, seven, eight times, 10 times a year, we talk on the phone, just going through catching up, sharing wisdom. And I always take notes when Fred talks. And I thought, this is the 100th episode. I can't imagine a better 100th way to celebrate our 100th show by bringing this guy back on because he clearly made an impact last year on the audience and on me. So that's why he's back on. He is the special guest on a very special episode of this podcast. So I'll say it again. My brother, Fred Schultz, welcome back to the Bamboo Lab podcast. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Happy to be here. Super happy to be here for the hundredth. <laughs> for the hundredth time. The hundredth episode. Goodness. Crazy. It's amazing. That was 70 episodes ago when we last talked yeah. on, this, on this show. Doesn't seem that long ago to me. It doesn't seem but, that long uh, ago. I don't. I'm so excited to be back, and and uh, I hope your audience can get a little something from uh, what I have to say today. Maybe some little nugget for somebody would be awesome. You will definitely provide some grand nuggets on here. So, so let's just start. You know, I'm just going to have you share. If you want to recap what you shared last year, Fred, and we're, uh, audience, this is going to be a completely different um, episode. We're not going to go through my standard questions because we did that last year. We're going to take that and go to the next level with it. So, Fred, I'm going to ask you to kind of recap the your life journey, um, and then we'll start. We'll go once we go through that. We'll say, okay, where are you now? Yeah, so, well, it was, it was exciting to share my story with you uh, and your guests last year, your, your host, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, your audience. And, um, but one, I was disappointed with myself afterwards, so I'm so glad you had me back on. What? Why are you um, disappointed with yourself? Well, because I shared my story and I forgot the most important part. Okay. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my God, I wish we could re-record that because I forgot the most important part. But we can get to it today. So thank you for having me back on and letting me share the most important part. Um, but what I shared last time was just my journey as, as what I call when I was Coach Fred. Um when I was 30 years old, I was just a regular guy uh, starting my financial planning practice. I had a, a beautiful wife and we had a beautiful daughter at home. She was uh, just over a year or so and um, year and a half. And uh, I went through a major physical, you know, crisis. I had uh, basically, I wasn't taking care of myself. I had doing a lot of stressful things all at one time, right? Starting a family, buying a home, starting a business, and wasn't taking care of myself, was burning the candle at both ends. And I uh, had my intestines rupture, um, which is kind of unusual. And, um, and I went to the hospital 
but they didn't do the right thing. They sent me home because I was already scheduled for a CAT scan a couple of days later. And a couple of days later, when I went in for that CAT scan, they were scurrying around trying to quickly get me admitted um, because I was in, you know, uh, shock and, and septic uh, poisoning, blood poisoning uh, from the infection. And I had to go through, they had to stabilize me for about five or six days until um, I could even have the surgery. And then I had a 14 and a half hour long surgery where they opened me up um, from my sternum all the way down to my pelvis hmm. and um, and had to clean out my entire cavity and all my organs, uh, pack them all back into me, close me up and give me a temporary colostomy bag because they couldn't complete the surgery. My intestines were too messed up and needed to heal. And uh, three times that night, I stopped breathing. And there was a confusion with medication and the nurse gave me something she shouldn't have. And next thing you know, it was like a yelling and cursing between a doctor and a nurse. And, and they were telling me that I had to fight to breathe. You have to breathe, Mr. Schultz. You have to fight to breathe. And I thought, oh, well, my dad's Mr. Schultz. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, I am. I have a family now. <laughs> and, oh, my God, my wife's four weeks pregnant. We haven't even told anybody. Or she was eight weeks pregnant, maybe. And, uh, yeah, my poor wife, during the 14-and-a-half-hour surgery, she had to tell my mom and dad, by the way, we're pregnant. And, um, and yeah, I was woke up the next morning. Thankfully, I made it through the night. I fought for each breath and, and got up the next morning and saw the wreck of my body. And uh, it was shocking. And, um, but I didn't have a lot of choice. You know, we had mortgages to pay and mouth to feed and another one on the way. And I was running my own business. So I had to go back to work. Went back to work and did the best I could for six months, kind of limping and holding my stomach and making my way into the office each day and a little bit better each day. I was able to do a little more, I was able to make it through those six months somehow. And um, and then six months later, I went back in for my second major surgery, and that was another really, really long one as they reconstructed my intestines and put everything back in place. And um, I had to go right back to work. And I uh, was you know, in the hospital for a while and at home for a few days, but then it was time to go back to work. And I went uh, to work on a Monday in September, and uh, I was all excited. And I had a good day, got a couple of referrals, talked to some clients, and the next day was going to be a great day. I couldn't wait for Tuesday. Well, that Tuesday was Tuesday, September 11th. Yeah, not the day I thought it was going to be, right? No. no. Not the day anybody thought it was going to be. Changer, that was a game changer. Uh, and, and I live right here. I live eight miles from New York City, and I was driving my daughter to my parents' house, and you know, I heard that a plane had hit the tower. I looked up at this beautiful blue sky with just a couple clouds, and I was like, well, that's on purpose. Yeah, you, you can't drive a plane into that building by accident. I mean, the World Trade Centers, you can see them for miles and miles and miles away. Uh, and uh, yeah, it turned out to be the worst day, right? And um, yeah, I was worried about growing my practice. And then I was just worried about my clients. Were they okay? And um, and uh, yeah, but, but we went back at it. But unfortunately for me, I had knots and lots of scar tissue because I was young and 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 the next two or three years, I had a really tough time digesting food. Some days I could eat, some days I couldn't. I was always really skinny. And, uh, um, you know, eventually I decided that even though they don't want to have to do more surgery on me because it's likely to just cause more scar tissue that they were going to have to. And I went in to have my third major surgery. 
And it was just a few days around Christmas. I wanted to have it done then so I could get back to work in the new year. And I uh, went in that day a little angry and uh, turned the TV on. I was delayed and I was pissed off. And and there it is. There's a tsunami in Southeast Asia and there's thousands, thousands of people dying. And that was a really big wake-up call for me, just like 9-11 was. Like, you think you got it there, Fred. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're alive. You know? And um, and fortunately, that's his surgery was a success. And I started to get healthy and eat food, started coaching kids in town. I love coaching. My dad was always a coach, inspired me to want to coach. And, and um, everything was going good. And I was back to my skiing, which, was, which I love to do. And uh, everything was going great in my life. And I went away on my annual ski trip, which I do every year with my best friend, to kind of recharge. And I got home and, and my wife's like, hey, the doctor called about your blood work. And I was like, Really? She never calls. So called the doctor back, and I was like, Doc, the, the test you did on my prostate? She had wanted to do the test for the blood work for prostate because my dad had had it. And um, so she did, and, and it saved my life because a year and a half later, after three negative biopsies, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. At age 39, I was walking down the hallway holding my wife's hand, and she was crying. And uh, Lisa doesn't cry that much. <laughs> And, uh, man, I have prostate cancer now. I've got two kids in elementary school. What's going to happen? And uh, I know a lot of time to deal with that, though, because, you know, I have another major surgery. So into Disney World, because that's what you do. You make some memories. And then I went and had surgery. And it's my fourth major surgery. And when I needed to be my, was at my weakest and, Two weeks later, I was on the couch again, but this time it was the global financial crisis. Yeah. And the whole world was falling apart, and all my clients, and I wasn't making any money. And it was like, how are we going to make it through this? And I have cancer, and is it going to be gone? And I'm wearing a diaper, and I don't know if I'm ever going to have sex with my beautiful wife again. And, and it just spiraled down and down and down. And as the stock market went down in 2008, and summer of 2009, when it hit its low, I think I hit the low at the same time. Spirit, mind, body, crushed. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know what to do, so I decided I was going to go on a journey. And the journey was to find Freddie again, the happy, confident guy I was before all this, the guy who wasn't looking over his shoulder all the time for the next shoe to hit, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I went on a journey, and it started with therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy and then life coach. And, and uh, I took my process basically from financial planning, what's you saying, where you are and where you want to be. And I kind of did that for spirit, mind and body. And I wrote a plan. And, and the next thing you know, it was 2012 and I had deep cancer. It was gone for four years. And I went hella skiing in British Columbia with my best friend, getting out of a hella ski gear, out of the helicopter at the top of the world. And I looked at the view and I thought, oh my God, I did it. I did it. I went from the worst place ever on the couch again after cancer. Destroyed to the top of the world again in every way. And I was like, oh, geez, I think I need to share my story. (laughs) 
And uh, people, I had already kind of been sharing my story a little bit with other cancer patients who were getting put in touch with me. And, and I was sharing my little bits of things I learned along the way. And every time the simple little stuff I told somebody, the simple little story I told them, it just seemed to have an impact. And I was just doing more and more of that, like just sharing little bits of what I went through and what I learned, and it was having an impact. So when I got back from Helleskine, I decided to make like a video. I sat down with this friend of mine who worked in television, and we went to his little basement studio, and we wrote, recorded, produced a video. It's about three minutes long, and it's like footage of of the helicopter taking off the top of the world and that view I saw. And, and then I shared my story for the first time, um, what it was like for me and my wife, for me and the kids, for me and the kids that coach and me and my financial planning clients. And, and like what it was like as I got cancer, fought cancer, beat cancer. And at the end, we shared, you know, I'm Coach Fred. And I just kind of put it out there and people that I knew and then somebody that I work with and, and asked if they could share within the company that I own a franchise of. And next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call from the president of the largest, you know, financial planning company in the world asked me to come give a motivational speech for like their top women advisors in the country. So I was like, Oh, cool. I'll go do that. And I'm like, I, but I didn't just go do it. Like I spent a couple of months really working hard on how I'm going to share the story, what I'm going to say and practicing it. And, and I went down there and, and it was amazing. I shared my whole story for the first time, and I don't know, people were laughing, crying, and at the end, they stood up and cheered, and, uh, and I thought, wow, that's cool, I was a motivational speaker, and checked that off the box, that was fun, and that's all I had planned for it, and I actually didn't have any plan for it, I just got asked to do it, and said yes, and showed up, and um, well, somebody saw me there, and wanted me to come, next thing you know, I was like a keynote speaker, the next speech I was a keynote speaker at a national leadership conference. So there's 400 amazing leaders around the country and they do the same thing. They're laughing, crying, standing up, cheering. Next thing you know, they start inviting me all over the country. And then I started crisscrossing the country, sharing my story. You can get knocked down and get up again. But you can't do it without the other people in your life. And that was the thing I forgot to say the last time I was on the podcast, Brian, is connection. Yeah. Connection is the driving force in our life. And with every other thing that I was able to do or learn or whatever, none of it happens without connection, without the other people in my life, mostly without my wife and, and uh, my children. Mm-hmm. You know, and so my story is really a story of connection. I never intended to be a motivational speech, speaker. I, I, one speech led to 70-something, and I probably spoke to 25, 30,000 people. And, and it was amazing. I was having an impact, but I was telling other people to show up for what matters most in your life. And then I was in a Marriott hotel room or something that night and waiting to get home to my wife and my kids. And so after about a year and a half, two years, they just, they stopped inviting and I stopped. I didn't have like any kind of business set up to promote myself and it stopped and I allowed it to. And I thought that was awesome. I had an incredible gift given to me where I got to go meet all these amazing people. And and I got to inspire some people and give hope and, and make a real difference in a few people's lives. And um, that was amazing, but it was time for me to go home. And, um, but, you know, I started getting phone calls from people who had heard me. And it was sometimes years later. And my story was having an impact. It was resonating. Something I said didn't hit them until they went through something. And then it hit them. And um, 
And so then I was like, you know what? I don't want to go on the road anymore, but I want to be able to keep allowing this thing that this story to keep helping people. So I, I, I wrote a book and it's called keep showing up. And, um, it's everything I learned in that time to, to keep getting up again, to keep showing up for what matters most in my life and to ultimately go from the couch after cancer back to the top of the world again. And, um, and I wrote it so my friends and family who kept saying, hey, I want to share your story with so-and-so, that they would have a way to do it. Mostly I wrote it for Sydney and Andrew, my two beautiful kids, that someday if something, and this gets me emotional every time, someday if something happens bad to someone in my family, that they'd be able to say, this is what your grandfather would say. Um, so for me, it was really about a legacy of everything that I would want my kids to learn or be able to get from my story but they might not be able to get it till they actually were going through something. And if I wasn't here to give it to them, there would still be a way for them to get it. And um, so that was cool. I wrote the book, but I never really promoted it. Like I, I think I hit the bestseller list for one day. Well, <laughs> let me just stop you for a minute. Cause when you wrote the book, you were, you told me about it. So I, I got a copy right away. I don't think I got a signed copy though. Maybe I did. Ah, well, you could get one. Yeah. I think I can get you one of those. <laughs> um, and I read it right away and I, I absolutely loved it. I still have it on my shelf. Um, it's one of the, I have about 30 books that I keep that I really, that made an impact on my life that always stay with me if I travel or not when I travel, if I move somewhere and it's a lot of books go in the archive, they go into storage, storage units. But, um, and then I immediately, when I read it, I called my sister and I said, I think you're going to love this book. So I got, I think, I don't know if I got her a copy or she ordered it and canned it. And when she got done reading it, she told me she absolutely loved it. I believe I sent that text to you, which how she showed what she shared with me. Yeah, back in the day. And I'm going to include a link to the book, the Amazon um, link to the book. So that all of you listeners out there can, can refer to that and li- click on that link and order that book. It's a five-star rating on amazon.com. Uh, so anyway, enough. I want to yeah. promote it a little bit. So. Well, and you know, I've never really promoted it and I never priced it. I'll never make a dime. So, um, but, uh, I only bring it up because if people want more of what they just heard, it's all in the book, (laughs) right? But we're going to move forward and talk about something else because after I did all that, you could imagine that I felt pretty confident walking through life. Like I can handle a lot, right? Like I felt pretty strong Mm -hmm. and I felt like I'm a warrior. And I can go through anything. And um, life is different after I stopped speaking. I for sure missed it. Um, and, and, and really, your heartfelt missed it. And I, my kids that I was coaching for all those years, year-round, like they all grew up. And I went from coaching to sitting on the sideline. I still went to all the games. Um, never missed one. But, uh, yeah, it just wasn't the same, you know. And I missed that. And, and then my kids were going away. They were both going away at the same time. They were two years apart, but my daughter went to community school before going away to school. My son went away to school as a freshman. It was during COVID. So we were all going through all the COVID stuff. My kids were leaving. And I was like, holy cow, I'm not speaking. I'm not coaching. I don't have my kids. What the heck am I going to do? Um, and, um, you know, we were just trying to figure it out, though. Figure it out. Got to go through anything. I'll figure it out. I started thinking about maybe I should get a dog. Uh, and um, But then I went through the worst thing I've ever been through in my life, Brian. After all that, thinking I'm strong and thinking I can handle stuff and writing a book to try to help other people deal. Um, I went through the worst thing in my life and it completely crushed me. We 
Lisa and I had, as you know, had a house fire, a major house fire mm-hmm. um, on a Saturday night. Uh, suddenly Lisa smelled something funny and uh, ran to the kitchen, looked out the back and, and there was smoke going around the garage. And I'm a huge outdoorsman and I've collected a lot of stuff over the years. There's all kinds of stuff in that garage, refinable, burnable, whatever. And uh, rushing around, trying to stop the fire. And uh, yeah, we had a major, major house fire. And uh, my house was going to need to be rebuilt from the studs up. Uh, but it is really an uh, incredible thing to go through when you haven't been through it, right? Because uh, first off, they ask you, like, they basically start investigating you for arson while your house is still burning. <laughs> Imagine that, Brian. No. I'm like, dude, I, I, wait a minute. You're asking about my mortgage and my marriage? Like, uh, can the house fire be put out? Uh, I'm not going anywhere. Like, we could talk, but can they put the fire out first, sir? Um, and um, so, and then there was lots of... Uh, Disorganization, unfortunately, with the awesome volunteer firemen. Thank God we have them. Mm-hmm. But they weren't all there because there was a, a fireman training somewhere, and there was another big fire in another town that they got called to. And so a skeleton crew was coming to my home, and other towns were coming. There just wasn't a lot of great coordination. And the fire just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It was in my garage. I was begging them to get someone in the basement and try to corral it, not allow it to spread, but it didn't happen. And the fire spread through the house, and I'm being you know harassed i felt like um by the fire marshal and uh no eventually the fire does get put out eventually we're escorted into the home uh so we could get our uh wallet and wedding ring and they escorted us into the home um and escorted us out and uh i basically told the guy like look the garage is mine my wife only knows where the beach chair is that's right by the front door and everything else is mine so if you have any questions about the garage it's me and so they let they let lisa go about midnight and then about 4 30 in the morning they called back the burton county prosecutor's office and said it's not arson and they gave me back control of my home and left and uh yeah you know that part fred i don't think i ever knew about i knew obviously about the fire and Every, I didn't know about the that they were investigating you for arson while a fire yeah, was by raging. By the way, they do it. At every, they do it to everybody. It's part of their process. It's very natural and normal to them, but <laughs> it's not very natural and normal to the person going through it on the other. No, I can't imagine. Yeah, and I was already freaking out because that's my children's home. I worked so hard to provide that for them through all of the other stuff we just talked about. So to watch my children's home burning up. I, I mean, that was, that was, that was the hardest part. That was the hardest part. I worked so hard to give them this home and their, their stuff is burning, you know? So, I mean, that was really hard. Um, I, I went, my wife had gone to my parents' house with the dog. And, and uh, so it's like five o'clock in the morning. I'm sneaking into my parents' house. It did remind me of college years. <laughs> I knew which steps not to step on to make noise. <laughs> And I quietly made it up to my old bedroom and laid down next to my wife who was not sleeping. And and we laid there for a couple hours and I went back over to view the devastation for the first time. And um, 
it didn't get much easier. It's not a very easy process. Um, but that's not what was hard, right? Because initially my perspective was, well, wait a minute. I'm alive. My wife's alive. If this fire had happened an hour later, it was right next to our bedroom. The fire alarms never went off because of the way the smoke was pouring. And, and uh, I don't know, we could be dead. <laughs> you know, and so right away I was like, well, my kids still have their parents. And everybody else kind of really, to be honest, Brian, I, I felt in the beginning that everyone except my wife uh, really needed me or expected me. Or I was like, almost they wanted me to be devastated. Okay. You know, okay. and uh, and I think because they expect it, and they're like, "Oh, Fred, with everything you've been through, you know." And it's like, yeah, but my listen, my kids still have their parents. We're insured; it will be rebuilt. And then the most amazing thing started to happen over the next first couple of days. I started to find all the stuff that didn't burn, and it was like all of the emotionally valuable stuff, and a lot of it was coming out of the wreckage i was pulling all this like treasure <laughs> out of the wreckage and everyone else is like oh i'm like yeah but everything that's destroyed is going to be rebuilt look at all this stuff that wasn't destroyed i've got the kids uniforms i've got the, the blanket my grandmother made for andrew like i like, all this great stuff made it <laughs> all the shit that didn't oh, that's money and we're gonna rebuild it whatever so it wasn't that it was like an overwhelming thing emotionally it wasn't that i was like oh my Right. It wasn't, but it was different. And I, it, I went through a uh, psychological crisis because, you know, the adrenaline, the endorphins from the fight or flight uh, really hit hold, you know, and I got doused with that because, you know, I really didn't tell people this, but I was stupid. A neighbor ran up with a fire extinguisher. and I twice ran down into the basement to try to keep the thousand degree fire come from coming through the door from the garage into the basement. And the second time I was down there unsuccessfully trying to keep the fire out, I just got a really bad feeling now. I started running. And as I was running up the stairs, the thousand degree fire and all the things that were in my garage to create flame or heat or cook or whatever, uh, it all combusted and the, the, the door burst open and the thousand degree fire came flooding into the basement. Ooh. And so I was going through my second near death experience and with everything I've been through, people just did not understand me at all right there. I was ailing um, to others because everyone is expecting this devastated person. And I kind of had this high of like, I'm alive, but really it was the chemical reaction in my brain. Right? It was, it was all those years of trauma and it was the fight or flight adrenaline endorphins that kick in. I didn't sleep for days. And sometime in like the second week, um, my brain took over and took me to another world. It said enough. Uh, lack of sleep is very dangerous. The chemical reaction in my brain is a train that could not be stopped. And initially after the fire, I was like, well, I can handle anything. And I'm just going to go right to my process, right? Which was basically spirit, mind, and body, and do things that make you feel good in those areas, right? So it was like spiritually, I went right to church, and I called my therapist, and I went right to the chiropractor. <laughs> I was like, okay, those are my three things. Those are my core things. I'll just jump right into them, and I'm going to be fine. But sometimes when you go through something that's unlike anything you've ever been through before, everything that you thought worked for you doesn't anymore. It, just, it was not possible. Mm -hmm. I, there was nothing I could do to stop what was going to happen.
And what was going to happen was some sort of episode uh, that the chemicals in my brain took over and my brain took me to a place of protection. And I, it wasn't, it was a place of ecstasy and, and weirdness. And, um, and the only way I was ever going to come down, I had to be put in a hospital medicated, seriously medicated. And, uh, that was a horrible experience. And, uh, I got out and I was crushed. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was strong and I felt as weak as I've ever felt. I thought I knew how to go through trauma and adversity and I felt foolish. And I felt like a fraud putting a book out to try to help other people get up again. Um, and I had to learn a very valuable lesson. I had to learn a new lesson. And that was there's a difference between dealing with the things in our life that are really difficult and healing from the traumas and everything in my book was valuable. I think most of it, um, it's all simple wisdom on dealing, which is important, right? Like there's a lot to deal with in our lives and we've got to deal with it. But, um, this time I think it needed to be different. Um, and I was crushed and that, that shock led to embarrassment and, Oh, embarrassed about the way I was had behaved, embarrassed about well, what I didn't even know I did, and uh, decisions I made, and things that were going on, and uh, it was embarrassment. And I felt like a fool, I felt like a fraud, um, and then that led to fear. When I, kind of reality set in, like, wow, I didn't do that much trauma that that could happen to me. I, I mean, I was fearful because Brian, this time it was my brain. Right. <laughs> and, you know, my brain is what got me through all those other surgeries and all those other challenges. It's your brain that allows you to, to handle physical pain, which was kind of where it started for me, right? The first journey was dealing with pain and daily pain for years and the pain of surgery and, and all that. And I certainly had felt let down by my body, right? They're telling me I had 60-year-old intestines when I'm 30, I'm getting prostate cancer at age 39, not 79. So I, I had felt that kind of let down by yourself before. But I, it was my brain that allowed me to get up again all those times. It was my brain that allowed me to show up. And so this was like a whole new level of fear of myself. Um, and that led to a serious phase of anxiety, depression serious phase and um i I didn't even enjoy skiing i went skiing the kids a couple times that first winter and i basically looked at my clock it's like okay three more runs okay two more runs okay one more run okay i guess it's time to go guys and uh i knew that was the canary in the coal mine Mm -hmm. skiing's my passion if i don't enjoy that uh oh uh oh but yeah so i was really really shocked that I could go through something so difficult after everything I've been through. I was shocked that I went into it feeling strong and then was feeling really, really weak and destroyed. Well, I, I, I've shared this before, you know, with you, Fred, is when, as our friendship has evolved over the years, 
you know, and I, I don't know if you like this term or not, or and I apologize if you if it's if it's offensive, but I remember our conversations prior to the fire, prior to you know you having the uh, being medicated and hospitalized, and it was like there was a period of time there in our conversations which were were less frequent during that time, and when we did talk, they were darker. And I always thought in my mind as a metaphor is Fred's coming back. He's 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 circling on the dark side of the moon right now, but he's he's going to come back, and, and and you know we're gonna he's going to become stronger through this and all of this. And and it, I I noticed that obviously in you a great deal, and it was an honor that we still were able to talk. You know I was so excited whenever you'd reach out to me or I and I reached out to you quite often and tried to stay in touch. And then every once in a while you'd say, Hey brother, can we let's 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 schedule a time to catch up. And and uh, it was like I was on the outside watching this journey and I always knew, okay, this is, this is, this is part of his process in life, not to use the term journey, because I know we are going to talk about that in a minute, but it was part of your journey at that time in your life. Um, Oh yeah. And it was so good when I saw, you know, it's like, there's that, yeah. With us, you know, during Apollo 13 for those three minutes when everybody goes, uh, there's no silent, there's no radio communication from, from uh, NASA to the space, uh, this is not the shuttle, but the, the whatever the spaceship, and they're coming around the dark side of the moon. And all of a sudden, you know, three minutes later, and then you can hear him talking again. It's like, and I remember when you came back around, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's coming back. He's coming back to where he wants to be. So, yeah. And, um, and I mean, that's what we were talking about the other day when you asked me to come back on. You were like, Fred, you sound different <laughs> even than before the fire. And, like, how'd that happen? <laughs> and so we started talking about it and then you're like, well, you know, would you come on the podcast and talk about that? And I was like, yeah, that, that actually really interests me. I'm not really interested in talking about the episode. Uh, but what I, where it took me, I, I think is, is something that, you know, maybe could help some people going through some tough times. Um, and I think the first thing is that I learned is that you got to have the right perspective, but perspective doesn't come without a little space and time. And um, so I kind of made a conscious decision in the beginning. And and that's kind of when you were reaching out to me, thank God. I have another friend like you, uh, my friend Todd. And um, there were, I got to tell you, most of those conversations you and I had that were dark, I didn't even want to have. I just knew I should you know, and, and the only reason I had him with you is because I fully trusted you that I could say anything. And I'm, my friend Todd, who lives kind of in the area here, every three or four weeks, he'd be like, hey, I'm going to be around. Let's meet for a beer. And he's like always going to be like at the at the place that's like two blocks from my office, <laughs> conveniently. <laughs> right. And uh, and I didn't always want to go meet Todd for a beer, but I did. Um, because I knew that even though I had made a decision that I, I needed to go into hibernation for a while and I still needed to have contact with people that I loved and trusted. And, and they were, they were the people I trusted enough to allow them to hear me in this dark place because I'm not going to be, listen, you can't get any better with something. You can't go through it unless you admit how hard it is. Right. You know, so it isn't the wallow in it, but you have to be truthful with how hard something is. If you can get the right help to get out of it. If you don't admit how hard it is, how can you ever get the help you need? You know, so 
yeah, that was a really dark period. It was also the period where I made a conscious decision to a go into hibernation in terms of I didn't have a lot of energy. If I didn't have the energy to go skiing with my kids, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta conserve it. Um, and I knew I needed time because you know I wasn't gonna feel like myself again until I came off the medication. Right. <laughs> it, it's it's medication that affects your emotions, so. You know, and I'm an emotional person, um, not driven by them, but I want to feel them. I like having the full range of emotions. And um, so that was, you know, I knew I needed to be patient with myself and I knew I needed to hibernate for a while. Um, and right after the fire, I made another decision, which before the episode, I made a decision that I was done talking. And I was going to start walking and Everybody knows me, knows I'm never going to shut up. I'm never going to stop talking. But in terms of trying to like talk to the public, be a motivational speaker, write a book, things like that, I just decided that this phase of my life, I really need to be done with talking. I, I'm trying to help other people and look where I led myself. I don't necessarily lead myself there. But that's what I was thinking at the time. And it's time for me to just walk in life at this time in my life. Mm. I just need to find a way to walk again in my life. And, um, so that was sort of the first phase of it all was knowing I was going to go through different phases, knowing that I needed to kind of hibernate, build up my energy again. We also had stuff going on. I had to rebuild my home. I still had my financial planning practice. My kids were away at college. So, and, and I have a beautiful wife. And so that's all I focused on for like that first year. Honestly, it was my wife, my kids, my financial planning practice and trying to just be patient and give myself the time I would need to A, get off the meds, B, get the space to have some perspective. <laughs> and then with perspective, I feel like that's when I'm, once I have a better perspective, I feel like then I can move forward in a, in the right direction and not just be, oh, I got to do therapy. I got to get, you know, like I got to do this. I got to do that. Like frantically trying to get better. Just no, let's just hibernate for a while and focus on what's most important in your life. And then, you know, get a little perspective on this so that you can then go do what you know you're going to have to do again, Brian, right. <laughs> which is change. Right. And, and because as we were discussing the other day, these big things change you. When you go through something really traumatic, you're going to be changed. So it's a question of how am I going to be changed? Is it going to be, am I going to be less than I was? Or am I going to be more than I was? Am I going to be stuck here? Or am I going to move forward? Like change is here. And, and what are you going to do about it? You know, Fred, when we met back, when we did our podcast back in July of 22, you told, I think you quoted where we are today is not where we will be. Yeah, I mean, and I think what what you just said reminded me, and we talked about this shortly, not that long ago. You know, I believe uh, this is a quote from one of my friends that used to tell me a lot. You know, we are either the thermometer or we're the thermostat. When we, you know, when we're going through change, going through tragedy, going through difficulty, or whatever it might be, you know, we can either allow we can be the thermometer and allow the environment to to control us and dictate us, or we can become the thermostat. 
and make something out of this or become a different person. We can we can dictate the environment a bit. And I think where I see you is you've always been that thermostat. And, and maybe not every day. Some days, obviously, you oh, were the sure. Right. But overall, you're the thermostat. And I mean, there's none of us who are the thermostat every day, especially during difficult times. But you are my brother. You are a thermostat in this world. You are. You change. Well, you change things. You know, let me tell you a quick story, Brian, about my grandmother. You know how much I love my grandmother. She's mm-hmm. awesome. An incredible woman. And um, she was really feisty and uh, uh, didn't really take no for an answer. But uh, I got a phone call one day. She's like, Freddie, I need you over here. And nobody said no to my grandmother. So I was home from college, I think, and ran over. And um, she was like, listen, it's this flower patch between the two apartments and these new tenants are also busy all the time. They're running through the flower patch to get to their cars. And I put up a note and nobody stopped. And I went to the meeting and nobody stopped and we put up a sign and nobody stopped. And so she's like, I need you to take me to the home Depot. Okay. And so we go and she's like, we got to buy pavers. I'm like, all right, I think I see where you're going with this. And uh, we get back and my grandmother gets out her little, knee pad that she would put down. She gets out her little yellow flowered gloves and a little shovel and she digs a spot for each of the pavers. She made a path through the flowers for people to walk on. She said, you know, Freddie, you can't always stop change, but you can redirect it. <laughs> Grandma wisdom, so, man. That's beautiful. I, yeah, I mean, and I think there's a lot of simple wisdom in the world and that's what I've always tried to tap into. That's what was in my book, Nice Peaches. Simple wisdom that's out there already is, I think, really powerful. You have to tap into that as a source. And so I knew that I needed to change again because it's one or the other. I've been through enough of these to know that you're going to be changed and it's just a matter of how. And I knew that was going to take energy, so I went into that forced period of hibernation. And uh, it was really what I needed at the time because I needed to learn one valuable lesson at that time, which is I'm not my diagnosis or I'm not what happened to me. I'm not my episode. Mm-hmm. I'm still just me. You're still just Coach Fred. I'm still just Fred. Just Fred. You know, and and um, my uncle had told me that when it first happened and I knew it was important and I knew I should let that sink in, but... It didn't. It took a while, but I think that was the most important thing from that time was that I was patient with myself, and and uh, yeah, that was really the most important thing. And I was patient, and I just focused on what was most important, and um, just remembered that I'm, like you said, where I am isn't where I'm always going to be, but I'm going to need to get some more energy before I can. Before I can go at it. And then, but then, you know, what happens? Life happens because I didn't, you know, I didn't really decide to come out of the hibernation until my father had a stroke. And that was really a lot going on. And I knew I had to put the war paint on and come back into the world that my, my hibernation period, my, uh, my rest was over and, um, you know, kind of had to come back at it. And that was a year almost to the day after the house fire. So that, that, that was a dark year, but it was a necessary one. Um, then I went into year two um, with a little bit of perspective <laughs> and um, understood that uh, patience was still going to be the key, 
that the goal was here at this point it was a couple things the goal was to just expand my comfort zone away from just lisa <laughs> Um, my comfort zone had completely gone away with the fear and the anxiety of what had happened to me. And, and I really clung to my wife, Lisa, and, and she became the, um, the extent of my comfort zone. And, and the second band, my comfort zone, uh, even back to my children, it was really good that they were away at school for that first year. And I was so glad they did not have to see me in that dark place. And I was so glad I did not have to try to hide it from them. <sighs> Um, and they were off thriving, making me so proud. So, um, that was really awesome. And, uh, yeah. So coming out of hibernation and coming back and just saying, well, let's keep it simple. Cause simple is, that's one thing I've really learned through all this simple is sustainable and happiness is underrated. Say that again, Fred. Simple is sustainable and happiness is underrated undervalued and so year two was really about um the first decision i made was i'm not there's nothing i have to do with this there's no why to ask i'm not asking why it happened i'm not asking what i'm supposed to do with this i'm not trying to turn it into the new thing to do i have to now share this story i have to now write a new book i have to do something with all this i decided not to go on another journey I know that sounds weird, right? <laughs> well, you, you had shared that with me before, and I thought that what it, that's such a, it seems so strange. I, I was like, "What the hell is he talking about?" Not a journey, but then when you the way you told me what that meant, I'm like, "Hmm." There's well, some, the journey there's some is having a destination. The journey is having a place that you have to get to. The journey is is supposed to be somehow epic and transformational, and, and forced transformation is exhausting, right? And I didn't want that for this. And I decided this was not for everybody else, that this was for me. No. And these changes, these changes were going to be for me. These lessons to learn were going to be for me because I deserve it. <laughs> because I've been through a hell of a lot. And happiness is completely underrated. <laughs> uh, and being, and simple, I and mean, if you can, find joy in the simple things because simple is sustainable that's financially that's you know simple is sustainable if you don't have a lot of expenses in retirement you can retire early right um you're sounding a little bit like a stoic philosopher right now well i mean simple is sustainable and happiness is underrated so that was kind of what i felt like like i'm gonna find just make sure i find joy in the simple things again and be happy. That's there's no journey there. There's no destination there. That's the, the goal is very simple. I just want to be happy. So, Again. Uh, and I had asked you this question. But to before, do that, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I had asked you this question before. Would that talking from from my perspective? I hear you saying I allow myself just to be present right now. Not thinking about where I'm going. I'm not thinking about some big lesson or trying to mm-hmm. use. Just be in the moment with myself. I'm not trying to figure right. out. I'm going to be patient and I'm going to listen to what I need. And what did that do for your mindset when you made that choice and started 
practicing that and experiencing that, what did that do for you? How did that, what kind of relief or? Well, it's very peaceful to not feel like, oh my God, I've got, I've got some destiny. I've got some destiny to fulfill here, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's very peaceful to just want to be happy. Hmm. Now, would, would and you- that doesn't mean I don't work hard or have goals or need to save for the future. And, and happiness is not consumption or, or right. Like, I think we get confused sometimes. You know, can I say this? Can I interrupt you as you were talking about happiness and the simple things and being present on my phone? You the, you probably heard it, everyone. Beep beep beep. That's I have my phone on do not disturb as I'm doing these uh, doing a podcast. But my children and my mother and Melissa have they can every time they they're not they they bypass that just by texting. My daughter just sent me a, a picture to our group text, our family text, of a picture of my grandson. And I didn't see it. I just saw it was a picture. I know what it is because she sends them throughout the day. And it just it was just like wow, you're talking about being present finding pleasure and happiness and the simple things and those, those things that are most important to you. And then I, I get this, this text, which I know as soon as I get it, put a smile on my face, as soon as I heard the noise, I know what the pitch, it'll be a picture of Jack. So um, I had to just say that because it was exactly what you've been talking about, Fred. But that didn't happen right away. Right. Like the, there was almost like this been almost three years since the fire, right? The first year was that initial going through all those emotions. The second year was being patient being present and not going on some sort of journey and knowing what now that I had the perspective from the first year and I understood that I did a really good job of dealing with all those troubles while raising my kids and having an impact and all that stuff. Right. I did a really good job actually dealing with it for all those years, but what I never took the time to do was heal. Okay. Right. And what I learned in this phase of my life is that there's a big difference between dealing with the traumas and the struggles and the hard times and the depression, the anxiety, and there's healing. And I ain't ever spend a lot of time focused on thinking about trying to heal. Everything that I tried to do during those first 15 years was about dealing better. And so after the first year, now I had the perspective and the patience to be able to say, well, okay, all that happened because I was not healed. And I went through too much trauma for too long that went unhealed. And so year two, I specifically looked for a way to get some healing. Okay. And what I did, well, you know, I listened to my instincts and kind of waited for the right opportunity to come. It's really hard to try to find the right therapist right now. Gosh, trying to get mental health uh, help is harder than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of waiting for the right opportunity and the right thing. And I didn't think it was cognitive behavioral therapy again. And, and uh, I didn't really just want to talk. <laughs> so, um, but I was on Facebook one day and there was this woman that I knew way back from college and she wrote a book and her book is called, unbelievably, my book was called Keep Showing Up and hers was called Show Up for Yourself. And she's a therapist who specializes in helping people with trauma. 
And I looked at her book and I was like, oh, show up. But this time show up for yourself. And that's, remember, I already made that decision that this time it was going to be for me. Um, so when I saw that show up for yourself, I just called her. It's <laughs> like, hey, Janet, I just saw your book. Uh, her name is Janet Roth. It's an awesome book. Um, and it, it, she knows way more about healing and from trauma than I do. And so I don't really want to try to talk too much about what we did in that trauma therapy. Um, but if you need that, if you have unresolved trauma, um, her book is awesome. Is her name now Philbin? Yeah, so it's okay. Janet Roth Philbin. Yeah, okay. And her book is called Show Up for Yourself. I want to make, I want to steer the audience to, to the right book, yeah. And this is powerful, that book, because it really talks about what I never knew and didn't focus on, which was my own subconscious. And I went through four months of hypnotherapy with Janet where we were able to actually go to the source. It's like speed therapy. It's the only way I could describe it because she she puts you in a place you're totally in charge. I don't want to describe it too much. But you get to a place where you can basically have your subconscious answer questions. And it cuts out the middleman, our ego, and all that crap that we bring along. And um, you can go right to your subconscious and you can basically view things as they really are. And um, it, it, was, it enabled me to deal with the traumas. Of, uh, one, of, one of the things I forgot to tell your audience is that my first memory in life is being severely burned as a child. And I, it's burned into my memory. It's my first memory. I'm about three and a half, four years old. And it was a horrific weeks afterwards, you know, having peroxide poured on the little baby's leg. Mm-hmm. And as his dad held him down, kicking and screaming. And he didn't understand why his parents were hurting him. Um, well, that little traumatized boy, you know, was still in me um, when the fire happened. And I almost burned in the basement, right? So, you know, there's there's the trauma that that's out there in us. And um, I was able to essentially go back and and heal from it uh, with her guidance through a series of rescues. (laughs) And um, I came out of that experience a little exhausted, but with the greatest understanding of myself that I've ever had. And I was someone who was pretty self-introspective and felt like I knew a lot about myself and felt like I really understood me. But taking that experience to go back and deal for the first time, not deal, that's the wrong word, to go back and heal for the first time from all the traumas um, put me in a position of knowledge base about myself that I never was in. And, and it gave me a comfort with who I am in my own skin um, that I never had before. And, and even more confidence in my ability to deal with the next thing life's going to throw at me because it's going to throw something else. <laughs> um, with this knowledge base. Um, you, you know, I just got to, just for a minute, I, I, I'm sitting here with my head in my hand and I'm thinking about the power 
of, you know, I've been through therapy, Fred, over the years, and I started in college. Um, I know I've seen different therapists. Obviously, I do a lot of self-reflection, uh, you know, reading and things like that. Yeah, but I've, I've never books. I've done the meditation. Yeah, I've done I've meditation. Done coach, yeah, you know. But I've, I've never done cognitive behavioral therapy. I've done talk therapy. But I, what you, you know. what you've done though is you simplified something. In and you said this to me before about the dealing versus healing. And I just wonder, I'm looking at my life, and I'm wondering if the audience member out there can please do the same. The trauma you've gone through, and you say, we all say, I've dealt with it. Oh, I'm, mm. you know, I've dealt with it. Mm. But can you say, I've healed from it? And I'm, I'm looking at things and how even just the choice of words we use puts us in a mindset of, I can say a lot of things I've dealt with. But when you said that, as I was writing these down, I even thought, you, when you say deal with it, the word with, that means you're still in the, you're, you're there, the trauma is there, you're dealing with it. But when you say yes. heal, you say heal from the trauma. You're, you're moving away from that trauma as you heal and grow. And I'm, yes. it made me think, and I'm going to ask the Bamboo Pack member out there who's going through trauma, who has, you de- dealt with it, great, man, because a lot of people don't even do a good job of that. But the right. next, more advanced stage, the, the real stage is now, have you, have you healed from it or are you healing from it? It's made me question a lot of parts of my life right now. And I'm actually on yeah, a... I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm no, on, just what you're saying about words, I think they're so important. Um and, and what I was saying before about perspective and the words that we use, use to ourselves, when I specifically said I was in a period of hibernation, like I literally, that's what I told myself. That was the word I used. When people ask me what I meant, I'm like, I'm in hibernation. <laughs> I'm a bear going away for the winter yeah. to, 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 to wait for spring. I, think I know spring's coming. I know spring's coming, but it isn't coming now. Right. And it isn't coming if I try to force it. Force transformation. That's another word that you, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, in perspective and, and the most valuable thing I got out of cognitive behavioral therapy back in the day was reframing the idea that you can look at something differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a huge tool in our lives to be able to continually reframe and not have to look at things the way we're told or forced or tried to view or things how we're supposed to view it. So I think the reframing is the most powerful thing of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm not a therapist, but I just did it, <laughs> you know, for a few years. And um, to me, reframing was the most powerful part of that. And for me, this new trauma therapy that I did, uh, being able to go direct to the source, you know, direct to the part of you that actually knows everything that really happened, and to be able to help that part essentially reframe, that's kind of what you do in, in this trauma therapy. Because healing, I think, is different than curing. I know, here we go with the words again, right? But healing is different than curing. I'm not expecting to be necessarily cured from all the trauma I've had in my life. But healing is when you can accept things as they are. Okay. And so there's an acceptance that comes with healing. That, and which, which I, I could do because I decided that there's no why. There's no what. There's nothing to do. 
I'm not going on a journey and I have nothing to prove. <laughs> right? Making those decisions of this because you, you if you if you want to add something in your life, you gotta get things out, right? There's only so much space. So by deciding what I was not gonna do allowed me to have the space to to put my energy beside what I decided I am gonna do. I'm not going on a journey. I'm gonna heal. Damn. I got to tell you, man, that that concept of that and that that forced transformation is exhausting. Quote you said earlier today. Oh, it's exhausting. Holy shit! I'm thinking, you know, honestly, buddy, I, I I'm thinking of how I try to do that so often, and I'm actually on a podcast this afternoon. Um, I think out of Alberta, Canada, I'm a guest, and that's what we're going to talk about. I think something like that, like my experience, and I, I have to now question in the next two three hours, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this about the dealing versus healing, and I I wow I don't know man because I think All I right, do. So let me finish up with where I went to. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, can I do that? Oh yeah, you can do that. Point. Yeah, you brother. I know we got to wrap Your up. Your audience here in a few has minutes, to go so. on at some point too, right? <laughs> Your audience is like life to get to living. Some people want to live. I want to be alive. Uh, Actually, it's reverse. Some people want to be alive. I want to live. Um, so, so here's so that was the second year was kind of healing, and here's where I am in year three. I decided now I was going to spoil myself, and that doesn't mean like fancy dinners and trucks and cars and things like that. Um, the core thing from my book that I would want people to take is if you want to be happy, if you want to be in the moment. Um, do what you love to do with the people you love. Mm. What you love to do with the people you love. Now, I promise you, you will be in the moment and you will be happy. So I decided to spend this last year completely spoiling myself by doing everything I love to do with the people I love. And that's how I spent the last year. And that's why you heard me the other day sound different. I spoil myself with connection, doing what I love to do with the people I love the most brings you right into the moment and allows you to connect to everything that's really important. And then when you're doing what you love with the people you love, you can't help but be happy. And happiness is way underrated. So I spent the last year just doing what I love with the people I love and being happy and connected because connection is the driving force in all of our lives. I don't get through any of this without connection. I don't get through without my wife, my kids. I don't get through without my beautiful brother, Brian, who made sure to talk to me through the dark days. You know, I don't get through it without connection. I'm not who I am without connection. And I've been spoiling myself with connection and love. And, and, um, and because I'm in love with the simple things, it's going to be a, a very sustainable to be happy. Oh, man. The yep. other thing, and, and the reason I very specifically used, uh, and this will be real quick, Brian, the reason I specifically used the word journey and that I wasn't going on another journey is because I knew that I was ending my journey. We're all on a journey. The reason my story has touched people is because it's all of their stories. 
it's every great story that's ever been told. It's the human story, right? It's the hero's tale, right? Luke Skywalker has to defeat his own inner demon, right? He thinks he's chopping off the head of Darth Vader, but the, the head on the floor is his own. King Arthur had to go away on the journey to slay the dragon and walk through the fire. But the end of every hero's tale is they get to go home fully in their power, fully who they are, fully able to help the other people in their life. That's the reason my story touched people is because I, it, it's their story. It's all of our stories. We're all regular people who have no idea that we're going to go on a journey and then we're going to have to face our inner demons. And when we face our inner demons and we slay the dragon, we get to go home. So I'm home. I'm not on a journey. My journey's over. I've come home. I just want other people to be able to go through their journey a little easier and get home. Welcome home, brother. I love you, man. It feels good to be home. <laughs> it, does. it feels good to not be on a journey. It feels good to just be happy. It feels good to have you home. It feels good to be home. I love you, man. I love you, too. Gosh. You so just, much. You just flipping mic dropped. You just mic dropped this podcast. Might as well just hit the stop the record button right now. <laughs> Man, that was well, wow. I hope somebody got something out of it. I, wow. I tried to write some notes on the difficult, uh, the gumbo that is getting up again. It's not sim It's not necessarily simple, although I try to make it. And it, but it is simple if you stick to the just the simple wisdom that's out there. My simple wisdom is connection is the most important thing in your life and just keep connecting with others. Wow. Well, I, I do want to say this and I, you know, I wasn't going to bring this up, but you know, for the audience out there, uh, this is the second recording of this podcast. Fred and I did a, <laughs> we did about 45 minutes of recording earlier today. And then, um, I guess my recording system only handles 99 episodes. <laughs> And at the hundredth one, we got cut off, and uh, the recording st system stopped. So we had to reboot a few things, and uh, we redid it. And I was so disappointed in myself because as we took a fifteen, ten, fifteen minute break, I thought, "My gosh, I just captured magic lightning in a bottle." I don't think we'll be able to capture it again. And honestly, brother, you recaptured it with. I mean, it's there was more. There's more lightning in this bottle than there was in the one an hour ago. Uh, this is this is amazing. I love, love, love that that phrase. If you want to be happy and in the moment, do the things you love with the people you love most. What the hell else is there? There's nothing. There's nothing. <laughs> it's so simple. It's so easy. It's grandma's wisdom, man. You can't. And it's fun. It's yeah, right, right. <laughs> and it's fun. Right. And it's fun. <laughs> 
It's a lot of fun. I've been all over the country this year. I've road tripped with my son and my daughter. I've fly fished. I've skied in a massive snowstorm in the in the high Sierra Mountains, and been out to Colorado, my aunt and uncle's property, tracking deer and feeding the wild turkeys, and like been to the beach and down the shore and. I've done it all with my wife and my son and my daughter and my dad, my mom, my godmother and my best friend. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a great, simple year. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's continue on that path of doing the things you love with the people you love most because it's, it's, it's magical. All right. Well, listen. I think you know you, you just need to do another hundred episodes, and then or ninety nine more, and then you can have me on for two. I we're, we talked a little bit. We might start doing more regular shows together. Um, I know I we have to wrap up. I do have a coaching session here in about ninety seconds. Um, but I want to thank you, my brother, for coming on again. This one was a very special show, and you you owned up to the hype in my head of what the hundredth episode should be, and you you actually exceeded that. And I I can't thank you enough. And just know I love you. And um, I love you too, brother. Uh, where Best I know to your audience yeah. keep showing up, everybody. Keep showing, showing up, up, everyone. All right, I'm going to end it just at that because I always have my closing phrase, but I think this time it is that. Keep showing up, everyone. I respect and love you all. Take care.